Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. If you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more, uh, more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. And today is the fourth week of our series, If God Gave You a Brain, It's Okay to Use It in Church. Over the past few years, we have seen an explosion of disinformation in the United States, and it seems like some of the loudest voices that are promoting propaganda or views that are anti-science, uh, anti-medical science during the time of COVID-19, and other disinformation and propaganda are self-professing Christians, people who talk about God and Jesus Christ, and they talk about the Bible, and then they act in ways that are troubling and and don't seem to make sense at times. For example, we've heard Christians who mock Dr. Fauci, uh, and they mock the idea of wearing a mask uh, during, during coronavirus. And, and there are, of course, other Christians who disagree with them, but at the same time, the level of disinformation and, and distrust of facts and reason and what is true even Um, has prompted some people who want to follow Jesus Christ to ask some questions. And I don't know if you've asked questions like this. I know that I have. And if I, as a pastor, have asked questions like this, I figure lots of people have as well. Maybe you're asking the question, can a thinking person be a Christian in the United States? Can a a thinking, you know, hopefully intelligent and, and culturally aware person follow Jesus Christ as a Christian in the United States. The way that religion has been used for political reasons and spreading disinformation and being anti-reason and anti-facts and anti-science and anti-so many other things. And then I wonder if you're asking this question, can I be a part of a church community in the United States? Is this something that I want to be associated with? Is this something that I want to be known for? So if you're asking questions like that, like I am, This series is for you. If God gave you a brain, it's okay to use it in church. And and this is where we've been in this series and where we're still headed. So we've talked about the Bible and your brain, the relationship between faith and reason, surviving disinformation and propaganda, interpreting the Bible intelligently. Today we're talking about the Bible and science and the Bible, you know, including medical science. Next week, we're talking about Christians, vaccines, and conspiracy theories. And on that day, I'll welcome special guest Jeremy Taylor, who is an infectious disease expert. And uh, he'll share with us for five or 10 minutes about how the coronavirus vaccine works. And then we're so excited on February 14th, we'll welcome our special guest, Dr. Pete Enns. And so please invite friends and share these messages on your social media. And uh, thank you for being with us today. Uh, a few weeks ago when we started this series, we quoted the, the uh, 18th century French philosopher Voltaire, when he wrote something like this, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. We saw this at the attack on the U.S. Capitol, and we've seen this so many times in U.S. history when people of faith, and that's who Voltaire is talking about here, believe things that just don't seem to make sense. And Voltaire is making the point that as religious people, if we check our brains at the door, if we 
take this God-given brain, if we believe God is the creator in some way, and we'll talk about what that means today, but if we, if we refuse to use the brain that God has given us, then people who believe absurdities can commit atrocities. We, we say it this way at the well, bad theology hurts people. Bad beliefs hurt people. So we're not just talking about some nerdy academic exercise in this series. We're talking about the, how the things we believe affect the way we feel, and then they affect the way we act. And as people who want to follow Jesus Christ, we, we want to use our brains. We want to think and feel and act in ways that promote goodness and truth and, and beauty in the world. And so that's where we're headed in this series. And today we're talking about the Bible and science. And that includes, of course, medical science during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I have a question I want to ask you if you're willing to interact on the, uh, the comments here, wherever you're watching this, Facebook or, or well.online.church, wherever you're watching this right now, I'm wondering if you would be willing to, to express yourself and type something in the comments now. Now, of course, the CDC has recommended that we wear a mask when we're out in public, at least indoors, especially. And, and there are mask mandates in certain states or, or counties, cities. And there are folks who, who have trouble breathing and maybe they have a hard time wearing a mask. And for, for that person, it's not really safe for them to go out in public because they're going to be spreading the virus if they have it, or of course they're more susceptible to it if they're not wearing a mask. So there are people who need others to get groceries for them or run errands for them if they're not able to wear a mask. So I'm not discounting folks with legitimate health problems who can't wear a mask. But I do wanna ask you this question. And if you would be willing to comment, in the time that we live in, when so many of us are committed to wearing a mask and trying to slow the spread of COVID-19 and realizing it saves lives and livelihoods, if we can slow the spread and, and wear a mask. I wanna ask you this question. Have you seen people in public places who refuse to wear a mask or who don't have a mask on and they don't seem to have health problems, they're just, they just won't wear a mask or it's down over their face or their nose is hanging out? Have you seen people in public who are not wearing a mask during COVID-19? And I wanna ask you this. How do you feel when you see them? When you see people who are not wearing a mask in public during the COVID-19 pandemic, how do you feel when you see them? If you would be honest and just type, you know, what are some of the thoughts and feelings that come up for you when you see somebody out in public in an indoor place, especially, and they're just not wearing a mask at a store or wherever, and, and you see somebody and they're not wearing a mask, how do you think and feel in that moment when you see them refusing to wear a mask? Would you just type that into the comments and share? And I thought it would be interesting just to, to read each other's comments and to, and to invite us to share. How do you feel when you see somebody in public who won't wear a mask? And I, I mean, I'll go. I feel, first of all, I, I have in the back of my mind, maybe they have a health problem. But then I realize, well, wait, they shouldn't be out in public then. There should be people helping them, you know, if, if they are really not able to wear a mask. And after thinking that, I think, you know, they're, first of all, they're putting themselves at risk, but they could have... COVID-19 and they could be breathing COVID-19 into the air. And, and it just seems like it's, it's inconsiderate to not wear a mask. And sometimes I'll find myself feeling and just in my gut feeling like, oh man, I can't believe they're doing that. Why would somebody do that after all this time, months of information? And, and so that's kind of the instant reaction I have. How do you feel when you see somebody out in public who's not wearing a mask? Well, much of that seems to be connected to politics because COVID-19 has been politicized, but it's also connected to a distrust of science in the United States. 
we have seen people, like I said, mocking Dr. Fauci or mocking the CDC or saying it's all, it's just all ploy or control or government overreach or something to ask people to wear a mask. And perhaps no other issue has turned more people away from faith than the issue of faith and science or the relationship between the Bible and science. When I was a freshman in high school, I remember sitting in science class and uh, our science teacher was also the, the coach on the football team. So we kind of had the, okay guys, today we're gonna talk about uh, the theory of evolution, you know, like his coaching voice. And um, you could just feel the tension a little bit in the class, but the tension he felt because he, he had to give all kinds of prefacing and, and disclaimers. Well, you know, I'm not saying this is what you have to believe. And, and you know, this is the finding of modern science and this is a theory and I'm not telling you what you, and it was obvious that he was trying to placate any students in the class who might come from a religious fundamentalist background and they believe that evolution is a lie from Satan or something and he wanted to make sure that they don't go home and tell their parents that the, the science teacher is you know, a godless, horrible person who's telling them to you know, deny Jesus or something. You, you could feel that fear in my freshman high school class as he just kind of hem-hawed and offered all kinds of disclaimers before he taught about the theory of evolution, which is of course a theory that is accepted by you know, 98, 99% of scientists around the world about human origins. And of course he had to do all that prefacing and offering of disclaimers because of the way that so many more fundamentalist, more conservative Christians read the Bible, in particular the first uh, two or three chapters of Genesis, the, the creation accounts in Genesis. And I say creation accounts, plural, because I believe there are two creation accounts and we'll get there in a moment. But when you ask a thinking person in the United States, what do you think of Christians? One of the things that you'll often hear is, it seems like a lot of Christians are anti-science, anti-intellectual, anti-science. And that stems from this perceived conflict that some Christians have between the creation accounts in Genesis and, and the theory of evolution whether you go back to the Scopes monkey trials of the early 20th century in, in Dayton, Tennessee, or you go back to Galileo or Copernicus and their relationship with the Catholic Church several hundred years ago. And by the way, the Catholic Church now believes there is no uh, problem between science and faith, that, that the theory of evolution is compatible with Christian teaching. That's the position of the Catholic Church now. They've learned from that, but there are lots of Christians who haven't. Now all the way to, you know, people mocking the wearing of a mask because they distrust science and, and the primary, you know, the root of their distrust of science is their reading of the creation accounts in Genesis. And so we're going to talk about those creation accounts today and the relationship between the Bible of science. And we're going to, to see something today that the creation accounts of Genesis have less to do with science and they have more to do with what happened with the GameStop stock that we saw this week. So that's where we're headed today, the relationship between the Bible and science. So first, let's talk about interpreting a text, how we interpret a text. On January 6th of this year, at around 2 p.m., I texted something like this to my wife. Someone just tweeted, the Capitol is under attack. Now let's say that 2,000 years from now, 
someone discovers my text, whether it's a phone or however that happens 2,000 years from now, somebody with vague familiarity of 21st century American English discovers my text and they read my, my text to my wife from January 6th. Someone just tweeted the Capitol is under attack. Now they read my text and they're confused by someone tweeting. What is, how does somebody tweet? What, is, what does that mean, tweeting? And then they, they read the word capital that's spelled C-A-P-I-T-A-L and they're confused by that. They're like, does that mean like capitalizing letters or what, what does this text mean? It would be mysterious to them, tweeting and capital. And, and then they share my text with, with other people who also are able to read it to some degree. And, and, and somebody says, well, birds tweet. We know that that was a, a word for the sound that birds make. So birds tweet. And then some, somebody else in the group says, hey, could it be? He's like, no, no. And they're like, what? No, go ahead and say it. And he's like, could it, could it be possible that were there talking birds in the 21st century United States? on January 6th of 2021. And then somebody's like, well, wait, that would be like, that would be like one of the most amazing discoveries ever. And then somebody else, we could be famous. We could write books. And as a group, they decide, wait, I think, I think we're onto something here. There was a, there was a, a super race of talking birds in the 21st century United States who tweeted in English and people could read it. And somebody else is like, oh wait, you guys, I've got it. It, it all makes sense now, I, I, I've got it figured out. There was this, this race of talking birds who were so evolved that they were grammar Nazis and they believed that capitalizing letters was under attack. They, they, were, they were so evolved as talking birds that, that they were like the gatekeepers of the English, English language English, English language, and they were criticizing people who apparently were not capitalizing letters. You guys, we're going to be famous. They write books. They start colleges to teach their wide-eyed, impressionable college-age children a view of the world in which a super race of talking birds were the gatekeepers of the English language in the 21st century. They invest money into this. They invest time into this. They invest their reputations into this. There are people who go throughout their entire lives believing and teaching this. And you're like, Ryan, I mean, good attempt at a sermon illustration, but isn't that a little far-fetched that people would believe in the literal interpretation of talking animals? And that would be their interpretation, their interpretation of your text that they believed in literal stories where animals can talk. Ryan, I, I think that's a little too far-fetched. Good try, pal, but I don't think so. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Do you think someone wouldn't take a story literally that involves a talking animal. There are people who are making fun of Dr. Fauci right now and refusing to wear a mask because they distrust science. And the root of their distrust in science is a story with a talking snake. And it's actually a talking snake with legs because it, it, the snake loses its legs in the curse uh, in, in 
Genesis. So perhaps my story is not far-fetched. That there are people who would take a text about a talking animal literally, and they would stake their lives on that and invest themselves in it to the extent that they could never bear to admit that perhaps they had misinterpreted that text and would stick with their interpretation against all evidence. There's never been a super race of talking birds discovered. There's no evidence for that. But they would double down because the trauma of admitting they were wrong would be so painful. It's just easier to double down. As Mark Twain said, it's easier to fool somebody than it is to convince them they've been fooled. So that's one interpretation of my text. But imagine another group came along and read my text. And it was time-stamped, January 6, 2021, at 2.03 p.m., let's say. And they decide that in order to understand this mysterious text about somebody tweeting and the word capital spelled the way it is, maybe they need to do some additional research. They decide that they need to find some material that goes along with this text. They have the text, but now they need material to go with this text in order to help us make sense of it, or in order to help them make sense of it. The Latin word for with is con, C-O-N. They, they're looking for context. They have the text, but now, now they need material that helps them understand the text, and that's called context. And so they decide they're going to research the context of my text to my wife. And so what's the first thing they do? It's dated January 6, 2021. They go back into archives of United States news reports from January 6th of 2021. And how long will it take them to discover the meaning behind my text? It won't take long at all because that's the day that the U.S. Capitol was attacked by a mob. They'll discover that a mob of people apparently tried to overthrow an election and keep their preferred president in power. And so they stormed this Capitol building and it must have been a very traumatic time for the country, a frightening and anxious time for the country. And so they, maybe they hold a press conference and they share all that information about what they found. And, and, and they say, you know, we realize that the text is mysterious, but using context, we were able to make sense of it. No text is written in a vacuum, they would say. Every text is written by people who live in a certain time and a certain place with certain assumptions and, and experiences and whatever text they write comes out of all of their experiences and view of life. And they would say, by the way, it looks like Ryan misspelled the word capital. It's actually C-A-P-I-T-O-L, meaning the U.S. Capitol building. And that was a common misspelling. And then we also found a rash of mistakes in 21st century texts. It turns out that there was a feature called autocorrect that made people text crazy things to their friends because they autocorrected and then they hit send before they realized what it said. And then they would say about that mysterious word tweeting. As we all know, there is no evidence of a super race of talking birds who went around correcting other people's grammar. It turns out that there was an online platform called Twitter. And if you wrote a short message on that online platform called Twitter, that was called tweeting. And so the meaning of Ryan's text to his wife is he was on this online platform called Twitter and he read a tweet, a message that the U.S. Capitol was under attack. And then he shared that with his wife in this text. And that makes sense because when we experience historic events, the first thing we often do is, is inform somebody we love, helps us feel close to them and, 
and experience that in solidarity. So using context that we discovered, we have now come up with this interpretation of the text. And that would make sense to everybody in the world. Everybody who heard that 2,000 years from now would be like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now that we hear the context of that text, we can understand why it says what it says. Everybody would be just fine with it, except for one group of people. Who is that? The group of people who have invested their entire lives and money and reputations, and they've taught it to their children and, and that there was a super race of talking birds. They would be the only ones who would be offended by using context. And I would think that that illustration has a lot to say about the topic we're talking about today. Text minus context equals embarrassing misinterpretation. When we have a text and we're invested in that and it's important to us, reading that text and assuming we know what it means without understanding the context out of which that text came often leads to embarrassing misinterpretations. And I would suggest that that is what has happened in this debate between the Bible and science when people think that science and faith have to be enemies. I believe that science and faith do not have to be enemies. But these creation accounts in Genesis have been read, interpreted outside of their context. We have the text in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, but we don't have the context with it without doing research about the time in which these creation accounts were written. And that leads to all kinds of embarrassing misinterpretations and people raising their kids thinking they have to argue with their science teacher when he talks about evolution or she talks about evolution. And so uh, in Genesis, it appears that there are actually two creation accounts. And it seems that the authors or compilers of, de of Genesis were not trying to smooth that over. If people are fooled and they think there's only one creation account, that's not because the authors of Genesis are trying to fool anybody. They're not hiding this. There's clear evidence, even within the text, that there are actually two creation accounts. And so I just want to run through these and then we'll talk about what these accounts really mean for us today. They're not about science, so we'll talk about what they really mean. The first creation account is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3. There were no chapter and verse divisions in the original manuscripts of the Bible. Those were added in the Middle Ages. And Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, through chapter 2, verse 3, portrays a cosmic-sized God who speaks stars into existence. The language of that first creation account is almost poetry. It's almost like the lyrics of a song. There is rhyme and alliteration in Genesis chapter 1. I don't have time to explain all those patterns, but words, in, in, uh, are, re words are repeated in multiples of 7, 3, and 4. It's a song-like poem with mathematical patterns. Uh, on days one through three, environments are created. And then on days four through six, those in environments are filled in order. That's actually called a heliasm in biblical interpretation, like an X. It's based on the Greek word for X. And the, the theology is that God is a big cosmic God who is able to create the universe by speaking. 
So do you know any science books that rhyme? Bill Nye the Science Guy, that, that name rhymes, but I don't know of any science books that rhyme. Genesis chapter 1 is just, it just doesn't read like a science book. It's almost poetry. And that ends at Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. And then the second creation account picks up at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So in the second creation account that starts in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, God is portrayed as walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, just hanging out with them. It's, it's a literal down-to-earth view of this God who's just hanging out with Adam and Eve, and it's more relaxed. It's like a, a zoomed-in creation account. And so I just wanted to read how that first creation account ends in chapter 2, verse 3, and then read how the second creation account begins in chapter uh, 2, verse 4, and see if you can see the natural break. So the first creation account ends like this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now that sounds like the end of something, doesn't it? God has created in six days. On the seventh day, God rests. God has created human beings as the, as the pinnacle of creation. And then God rests. And that verse sounds like the end of something. Like this is the cap on the story now. But then here's what we read in chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens, made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had sprung up. Interesting. So even the inflection that you read it with can emphasize the fact that chapter 2 verse 4 sounds like the beginning of another creation account. So we've just ended one that God rested on the seventh day after all the creating God had done. And then in chapter 2 verse 4 we read, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were Created, So it seems like the author is not really trying to hide the fact that, well, this looks like this is two accounts. And then in verse 5, we see, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. But a few verses earlier in chapter 1, God had already created vegetation and everything else. So there are people who have recognized this and they've tried to harmonize it. And they've tried to say, well, it's like the first is, is the big story. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it's like... Um, another view of creation. But then there is some additional evidence for the fact that this, this seems to be two creation accounts. In chapter one, humans are created last. In chapter two, humans are created before vegetation. Uh, in chapter one, verses 11 uh, through 13, God creates vegetation and then creates humans after that. But in chapter uh, two, verse five, we read, like we said, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. And so there's just a different order of creation between the two here. So it doesn't seem like chapter 2 verse 4 starts just another view, like another angle. But the order of creation is changed. And then this is the big clue. And this actually has profound implications for the way people viewed the first five books of the Bible when this was discovered and taken seriously uh, about 200 years ago, 
in chapter 2, verse 4, we have a new name for God. This is the biggest clue. Within the text itself, like my text that I sent to my wife had clues like tweet and the word capital that was misspelled. Sometimes there are clues within the text, and this is one of those clues. One of the most telling pieces of evidence that there are actually two creation accounts is that the name for God changes in chapter 2, verse 4, when it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth. So in Genesis chapter 1, uh, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, in that first creation account, God's name is God. In Hebrew, it's Elohim. And it means it's, it's a generic word for God, the supreme being. And the name God is used all the way up through that first creation account uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. But then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, there is a new name for God that is introduced. Lord God. And you can see that in English. If you pull out an English Bible right now or on your phone, you'll see God is used in the first creation account. And then it switches to Lord God, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4. In Hebrew, that's Adonai Elohim. Now, Adonai is a euphemism for the proper name, Yahweh. The ancient Hebrew people viewed the, the name of God, Yahweh, as so holy they would not even pronounce it. So they substituted the, the word Adonai and, and then coupled that with Elohim in this chapter. So we would translate that Lord God. So instead of saying Yahweh Elohim, they would say Adonai Elohim, and we translate that into English, Lord God. So in the first creation account, we have Elohim. And then in the second creation account, beginning in verses, uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, we have Yahweh Elohim, a more complete and different name for God. Now, Yahweh means I am, or I will be what I will be. And it was viewed as the proper name for God. Now, watch this. Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, continues to be the name used from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, when Adam and Eve are banned from the garden. Then starting in chapter 4, only the name Lord is used. Only Yahweh is used in chapter 4 during the Cain and Abel story, except for one verse in chapter 25, or sorry, verse 25. And remember, those verse and chapter divisions weren't there in the originals. Chapter 4 ends with the verse, At that time people began to call on the name of Yahweh, Lord. Then in chapter 5, the genealogy from Adam to Noah, God is used alone, just like it is in chapter 1, Elohim. Then from chapter 6 through chapter 9, which is the Noah and the flood story, both Lord and God are used interchangeably. Yahweh and Elohim are used interchangeably during the Noah and the flood account. No names for God appear in chapter 10. Then in chapter 11, it's just Lord again during the Tower of Babel episode, just like chapter 4 with the Cain and Abel story, just Yahweh is used alone. So the name for God varies according to which episode you're reading in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Either Elohim alone or Yahweh alone, or Yahweh Elohim used together, or Yahweh and Elohim used interchangeably. It varies according to episode. And then in the 19th century, some theologians realized this and tracked these changes all the way through the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch. 
And it, it appears that the authors or the compilers of Genesis were perhaps trying to preserve various traditions, the Elohim tradition or the Yahweh tradition. There are others like the priestly tradition or a, a generation later, uh, the Deuteronomist uh, position. And we're trying to, in Genesis, compile these various traditions together into one book that honored these various traditions. So not only are the authors not trying to fool anybody and, and, and cover up the fact that these are different stories, different names for God, and they're different episodes taken from different traditions, but they're likely actually trying to show these different groups of people at the time that they're honoring their tradition. They didn't want to make a certain tradition angry. And so they wanted to make sure, oh, no, your tradition is included in, in, in these books that we're compiling. They're not trying to fool anybody. They're actually trying to make it clear that we're compiling and we're honoring these different traditions in the book of Genesis and in the first five books of the Bible. Now, at this point, there are well-meaning Christians who come from a more fundamentalist background who are perhaps becoming upset because like those who read my text in my example, we can become emotionally invested in our own interpretation, in our tradition, in our, in our culture to the point that our identities are fused with our beliefs, that we're not just talking about creation accounts and evolution and science and, but we're, but if, if I disagree and I have a, an interpretation of Genesis that is different, they believe that I am personally attacking them because their identity has become enmeshed with their view of the Bible. I remember teaching this material in the early days of a church my wife and I started called One Church in Chandler. And this is maybe, I don't know, eight years ago. And I remember giving this, you know, this material in a message and I walked off of the, the platform at Hancock Elementary School where we, we meet at, at the well. And a young guy who's probably like 25 walked up to me. And he said to me, you are a false prophet. This young guy who was dressed in like hip clothing, like he looked cool, maybe 25 years old, walked up to me and he called me a false prophet. And he said, you, know, you are teaching lies to these people. And I, I was, obviously, I was like taken aback. And I said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I'm, I'm reading Genesis and I'm teaching what is the consensus of, of Bible scholars about Genesis. And then he, he, this is what he said to me. He said, I have delivered the message to you that God gave to me for you. Now I shake the dust off my garments. And he walked away like a mid twenties guy. He's like, now I shake, I've given you the message God told me to give to you. Now I shake the dust off my garments. And he, he's alluding to a passage where Jesus says, if people don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet. And he said, shake the dust, I shake the dust off my garments. And then he walked away. I remember thinking, how, how indoctrinated was he as a child? or as a teenager or a young adult, I don't know when it happened. When this young guy, who's otherwise looks like a, like a hip, you know, well-dressed, cool guy, 
25 years old or whatever, would walk up to a pastor after a church service believing God has instructed him to call that pastor a false prophet because I had a different interpretation of Genesis than he did. We can see how deeply and intensely emotional these interpretations are. And this is so important for American fundamentalists because this this interpretation of Genesis, six-day creationism is what it's called, that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, and, uh, and evolution is completely false, and the, the earth is perhaps 6,000 years old. That is a foundational belief for American fundamentalist Christians who believe that modern science and the Enlightenment and modern you know, reason is an attack on their faith. And... The, the, the emotion is ratcheted up so high because, because their identity is fused with that and their culture is fused with that. And the idea that somebody would say that, well, this is two creation accounts that may not be about science at all is personally offensive to that person. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel a gut reaction when you heard me share that material. He definitely did. But now I want to share a little bit more about the context. And then perhaps if, if Genesis... One, two, and three are not about science. What are they about? Especially in the 21st century, in an incredibly anxiety-filled time, when our country is divided over certain issues, and many of us are, are stressed out and overworked and tired, what does the creation account, or what do the creation accounts really mean for us? So, a little bit of context we, t- we looked at clues in the text. So how about some context um, for how to interpret these creation accounts? There are, there are some clues within Genesis uh, 1 that tell us that there's more going on here culturally than what we can read in the text. Like my text that I sent to my wife on January 6th. First of all, light is created before the sun. So light's created on day one, if you know the order and, and and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that's day one. The sun is created on day four. So we know, of course, that our light comes from the sun in our solar system. Our star is the sun. And so, interesting. That, that perhaps is a clue that we need some context here to understand why. And then another clue within the text that we need more context is the sky is described as a solid object with water above it, and then apparently there's a lot of water under the earth. So we're told that God created dry land and separated the waters from above the earth to the waters below the earth. And the word that's used there in Genesis 1 for sky is like dome, like it's solid, like there's water up, there's a lot of water up there somewhere beyond the sky, and then there's a lot of water underneath us. And we don't really, we don't have that view of the world. I mean, we're on a a sphere spinning through space. And if you think about the Noah and the flood account, when the flood rises above the highest mountain in the world, which we know would be Mount Everest at 29,000 feet, that would require three times more water than is currently on the surface of the earth in our oceans. If that flood were literal, where did all that water come from? Well, in this view of the world, if there's a lot of water above the sky and there's a lot of water below the land, well, that makes sense if all that water comes crashing down. So that's, that's a clue. The sun's created on day four after light, and then the sky is like a solid object with water above it and water beneath us. So we need some context. Now, Genesis tells us 
it's context. Like I, in, in my text to my wife, it was time stamped and January 6th. And then I said capital, even though it was misspelled and tweeting. And, you know, th- those are, those are, um, you know, the settings, you know, it's January 6th, 2021. But Genesis tells us where the creation accounts are set. They're set in Babylon. And we know that because the Garden of Eden is near four rivers. And two of those rivers are the, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Those rivers are real. They exist. And those rivers were near ancient Babylon, what is now Iraq. So we know the setting of the creation accounts in Genesis, Babylon. So it's not surprising to us that Genesis shares a view of the planet, like the dome and water above and water below, with a Babylonian creation account called the Enuma Elish. Genesis and the Babylonian account have a common Semitic root in their languages. There are other similarities. But we see a view of the world in this Babylonian creation account, the Enuma Elish, that is similar to the view of the world in Genesis. But as we're going to talk about in a minute, there are profound differences for what this creation account means to us. And then we also know from Babylonian culture, from archaeology, that Babylonians also worship the sun. There were many gods, but they worship the sun. And so if you're writing a creation account about God and you believe your God is the supreme God, and you're writing in a cultural setting informed by Babylon, what does it mean when you say, oh, the sun was created on day four? Light's created on day one, but the sun's created on day four. It's like, oh, the sun's no big deal. Well, if the Babylonians worship the sun, and and the early Israelites here believe that their God was superior to Babylonian gods, well, there's a theological reason that the sun is created on day four. It's not about science. Light comes from the sun but they're making a theological statement about the place of the sun under this God, Elohim, who just speaks the sun into existence. And and then in the Enuma Elish, we encounter a God named Marduk, who has a cosmic battle with a a monster, a, a sea monster that symbolizes watery chaos, even though this is completely foreign to us, this is in the the Babylonian creation account, named Tiamat. Marduk has a battle with this sea monster, Tiamat. And Marduk defeats Tiamat and and splits Tiamat in, in two. And then one half of Tiamat becomes the water above the earth, above the sky, and the other half of Tiamat becomes the water under the earth. And that sounds a lot like the planet described in Genesis chapter 1. And then in uh, Babylonian culture, we have this, this concept of the Sabbath. Of course, the high point after the creation of humans in, in the, creation, the first creation account in Genesis chapter 1 is the Sabbath. God blesses the Sabbath and makes it holy. But the Babylonian Sabbath was tied to the lunar cycle which meant it was a monthly day off. The Babylonian concept of the Sabbath seems to be one day off per month. And then we know about Marduk from the Enuma Elish that Marduk as the supreme Babylonian god, the sun was also worshiped, Shamash, but but Marduk, the supreme Babylonian god, 
lived a life of leisure. Just lived an easy life of leisure because the purpose of humans in the Enuma Elish is to be slaves of Marduk. Humans are created just to be slaves, to be worker bees, so that Marduk can exploit their labor and just take it easy and live a life of leisure being fanned by palm branches and fed grapes because all of these humans are just meant to be slaves and prop up the extravagant lifestyle of the gods. That's the view of humanity that we see in the Enuma Elish. So we can see the same view of the planet, the cosmos in Genesis that we see in the Enuma Elish. And we understand, oh, that's why the sun was created on day four. And oh, that's why there's water over the earth and water under the earth. And the Noah flood story makes more sense if that's your view of the world. But, but there is profound meaning in the differences between those two creation accounts. So if a creation account is only about religion, then you read it and you'd be like, well, that's nice. So we can have religious rituals based on these creation accounts. Like, oh, that's why we observe the Sabbath or that's why we do this for religious reasons. Okay, but they're more than that. You see, and this is true of us as Americans as well. Every people group has a collection of mythology, myths, mythologies that tell their story and that form their worldview, what they believe is true, and it informs the way they live. So if your creation account is that there is this supreme God who just like ripped a sea monster in half and humans are his slaves, how do you view the world and how do you view yourself and your purpose in the world? And it's about way more than religion. So let's say there's a rich guy in ancient Babylon who owns slaves. And slaves are unpaid, of course, or maybe he has some employees that are so underpaid that they're practically slaves. He loves the Enuma Elish and Marduk, doesn't he? Because his religious creation myth in his culture supports him. He can live a lifestyle of leisure on the backs of all of these humans that he exploits as slaves or underpaid labor. The creation account of his culture props up a view of the world that benefits him. That's how these myths really function. And we have myths about the United States as well. Uh, we have myths that come out of our history, assumptions that inform the way we view the world and ourselves and how we fit in to our society. Do you ever feel like you work so hard and you feel stressed out and we live in this divided, anxiety-ridden time because there are a few people at the top in our culture who seem to benefit from everybody else's work. We have massive wealth inequality in America. It's the widest it's been since before the Great Depression. We're living in a second gilded age, like the, the end of the, the 19th century when, when a few men at that time held most of the wealth in the United States to the extent that they were, they were making loans to, to the government of the United States. 
And we're living in a time now when even during COVID-19, the rich have become richer and, and the poor have become poorer. And most of us, we just kind of struggle somewhere in between. Do you ever, do you ever feel like, you know, there's so much exploitation that's a part of the history of the United States. And it seems like that's connected to the myths we tell. Our mythology as a, as a country, do you ever wonder why that is and why, why Americans will brag about being workaholics and how we work so hard? Oh, I, I just worked through lunch today. I didn't, I didn't even stop to take a lunch. And we brag about that. You wouldn't hear that in Europe. But in America, you'd hear, you'd hear about somebody bragging about working through lunch. Or I didn't, I didn't take much of my vacation this year. I just, I just kept on working. We would say that like that's a badge of honor. In, in England, you would get made fun of for doing that as a corporate shill. Like, why would, you, why would you not take your vacation? What is that? But that's based on certain myths that we tell ourselves in America because of our history and the stories that we tell, which brings us to GameStop. So this week, uh, one of the major stories was there was this epic... Uh, level reached in the stock price of this company GameStop that, I mean, I'm sure is a nice company, but they, they weren't doing so well, but their stock is just astronomical. And what happened was that, and I'm no economist here, but, but in 2019, at least one social media influencer in the investment world, maybe more, decided that he was going to invest heavily in GameStop stock, which was really low at the time. And he pumped, you know, GameStop or GameStop stock, uh, and and got other people to invest. And then what happened was, I guess on Wall Street, there's a, a practice called short selling, where billionaire hedge fund managers, people at the top in the United States, will short sell a stock. And and I don't fully understand it, but it has to do with borrowing stocks and then promising to pay that back at a later date, believing that those stocks will decline in value so you can, you can get more for your money in those stocks when that later date comes, short selling. But what happened here with GameStop was while these hedge fund managers thought that the GameStop stock would decline, it actually went through the roof. And they were forced to buy stock in GameStop at a much higher price and, and drive the, the price of that stock higher and higher and higher to astronomical levels. And so it was an example of a bunch of you know, the little guys, just normal uh, Reddit users you know, who followed social media influencers. They, they jumped in and invested maybe a few hundred bucks or a few thousand bucks in GameStop you know, a, a year or two ago. And now some of those people are millionaires. And for once, uh, they defeated Wall Street. They won. The, the, the hedge fund billionaire, hedge fund you know, managers, they lost. And the little guy won. You know, Main Street beat Wall Street. And the reason that story went viral this week is because that's so unusual in the United States. We live in a time of vast wealth inequality where there are people who are millionaires and billionaires who essentially treat the stock market like a casino and they make money off of us in ways we don't even understand, like it's a game. And for once, the little guys you know, got ahead and won one. We're just not used to that happening 
in the United States. America is a country with the highest level of wealth inequality in the developed world, where people brag about working through lunch and not taking all of their vacation time. And we just work, 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 work. And, and we're living in a time that is divided by the same racial issues that we have been struggling with throughout the history of our country. And it seems like there is this fusion between people who want to exploit the masses in order to become rich and this disinformation and propaganda that we see shared. It's almost like some with wealth and power intentionally share disinformation and, and, and propaganda that keeps middle class and working class people divided according to racial lines. Like if we just keep fighting each other, if whites and blacks and Hispanics and every other race in the United States, if we just fight each other and blame each other for our problems, we'll never look up and realize that we're all overworked and stressed out and divided and anxious because there are very few people at the top who are causing all of that to happen because it benefits them, kind of like Marduk. And in the mythology of America, we see its, its roots in our history of slavery, that this is a land that was colonized by wealthy European men as a way to get rich by exploiting free labor. And the labor that they exploited was largely people of color. So if you, if you start a country exploiting people of color, literally owning them and selling them, then you have to come up with some mythology to justify how you can do that. And so we have these myths as Americans and we believe our own creation myths about what it means to be a hardworking American so that we assume that being a workaholic is normal and we brag about working through lunch and not using all of our vacation. So let me ask you, do you feel overworked? Do you feel stressed out? Do you feel like a, you know, just a, a cog in the, in the wheel sometimes, like a means to an end? And, and the corporate grind just kind of you know, uh, fatigues you. Do you ever feel like that? And then you, you look around at what's happening in our society, the division and the anxiety that causes you personally. And you're like, I'm just living in this, 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 this time of anxiety and overwork stress. And it's all connected to our history and the, the origin stories of America. And I remember a lady at the well a couple of years ago who shared with me that she had been working a job for a long time that was really grinding her down. She was a highly skilled, highly educated person and, and had been working mandatory overtime, wasn't getting to spend the time with her family that she wanted. There was no work-life balance. It was all work. And this had been going on for a long time. She put up with it for a long time. And occasionally she would say to her boss, you know, can we hire some help? Like, are we going to get any help around here? And the boss would say, oh yeah, yeah, we're working on it. But then the boss would also say things like, well, we just got to do more with less, which reminds you of, of Pharaoh telling the children of Israel, make more bricks, just no straw. If you know that story from Exodus, the, the book after Genesis in the Bible, when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt and, and she just kept getting these false promises over and over again. And she just couldn't do it anymore. After a year or two of this, you know, she had believed these myths. Oh, I'm just going to be hardworking. I'm going to tough it out. And she said, I can't do it anymore.
And she asked for, for prayer, for the strength to, to search for another job, you know, not knowing if she's going to be able to make the same level of income and what the new job is going to be like. And it's scary. It's anxiety producing to change jobs, but she realized she had to. And eventually she, you know, probably took weeks, maybe a couple of months, but she got into a new role where she was treated like more of a human being and didn't feel so overworked and, and run down all the time. Is that true of you? Can you identify with her? That you're, you're overworked, you feel stressed out, and then all of this is going on in our society that just seems to be linked somehow. Like there are a few people at the top who spread disinformation and propaganda like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And the point of all of it is to keep us, you know, hardworking and divided as Americans so we never look up and realize, oh wait, look at all this massive inequality. This is who is exploiting me. This is the source of my stress and anxiety, not somebody of a different race. It's the people who are exploiting all of us. That comes out of the origin stories that we tell ourselves. If your origin story is Marduk, like the the Enuma uh, Elish, and, and humans are your slaves, well, that produces a certain kind of worldview in a certain kind of society. But that's not what we have in Genesis. The Genesis creation accounts are not about science. If you, if you just ask me point blank, what does the Bible have to do with science? The answer is nothing. The biblical authors were not writing about science. Here is one thing that the Genesis creation accounts mean for you and me. The Genesis creation accounts are an attack on inequality and slavery. They have the same view of the planet as the Enuma Elish, but they have a profoundly different view of God and human beings and what our purpose is. You know, from Genesis 1, 27, human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. And that was reserved for kings and queens in the ancient world. So the Babylonian creation account said, you're a slave meant to break your back so that the gods can live a life of leisure. The Genesis creation accounts say, you're a human being with dignity and you're not a slave. You're free and you have been given this place of honor by God to be caretakers, junior partners with God to take care of God's creation. That's the Genesis creation account, at least the first creation account view of human beings. And so if you feel overworked and stressed out by all the division in our society that feels like it's linked to a Marduk type creation myth that benefited the wealthy few throughout American history, well, perhaps it's time to really believe the Genesis creation accounts. That you are not a slave. You are meant for more than that. You're not meant to be divided from your brothers and sisters by race and and all of the disinformation and propaganda that gets put upon us in the United States. You are free and you have dignity. And the first creation account in Genesis ends with that weekly Sabbath that we talked about. Remember, the Babylonian Sabbath was one day off per month. But in the Genesis creation accounts, that's changed to one day off per week. The Bible is not about science. You know, one thing that the Genesis creation accounts are about, the first creation account is a labor law. Because you're not a slave 
and you're created to be free and you're meant for more than breaking your back in an, an overly stressed, overworked, anxious, anxiety-ridden society, we're meant to be able to take a day off every week, not just once a month, every week. And remember, oh, I'm not a slave. I have dignity. This is why I was created. And it's not just Marduk who gets to rest. I get to rest. I get to spend time with the people that I love. I get to do the things that remind me of what's most important in life. My relationship with God who says that I'm created with dignity and, and freedom. And I'm not a slave. The Genesis creation accounts are a labor law meant to remind you that you are not a slave. Politically, it means I'm not going to let a few people at the top behave like Marduk and view everybody else as their slaves. I'm going to work for a society that is fairer than that, that believes that everybody is created in the image of God. And we all deserve better than to be ground down to powder overworked and anxiety-ridden and, and divided the way that we are. We all deserve something better than that. And so I'm going to work for a fairer and more just society. That's what believing the Genesis creation accounts can mean for us. The Bible is not about science. Uh, the Bible is not meant uh, to be something that keeps you from trusting Dr. Fauci and wearing a mask during COVID-19. The Bible is not something that should cause high school students to feel like they have to argue with their science teacher when they teach evolution. The Genesis creation accounts are about something much different than that. They're about who you are. You are not a slave. You are a free human being created with dignity in the image of God. And that is true not only of you, but it's true of everybody else. And because of that, we're all set free. Kind of like the investors in GameStop, even though some of them will be hurt by this as well. We're all set free to get in the game and be able to live a life that is dignified. Not as a slave, not as a cog in the wheel, not as somebody who is constantly overworked and stressed out because that just benefits a few people at the top. But all of us together were created by a God who cares for us for a life that is more than that. You are not a slave. You are free and you were created with God-given dignity.